Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships and clippers at sea. Let's go to press. Flash, London. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. For reasons of national as well as personal security, I am unable to tell you the exact location. From Salisbury, Rhodesia, from Islamabad, Pakistan, and from Juneau, Alaska, comes today's news. Good evening, everybody. This is Lowell Thomas. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. Stand by for news. This is WGN Radio, Clear Channel Radio, serving the nation from Chicago. This is Doty Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there, and welcome to the initial podcast of Doty Land. It is really great to be with you. It's taken a while to get this program on to the air, and uh, today I think we have a really good show. We're going to be talking about radio, some of the nostalgic memories with a former broadcaster from WSBT in Stevens Point, and also talking about ham radio, why it benefits people in Dane County, and why it is also a good hobby to undertake. And I have a few personal memories about radio, including what it meant to my nephew Trevor and how it connected with what I did on the air. There will be a Facebook page set up for Doty Land, so we're going to have interview guest pictures and there will be other material associated with the content of this program. So go to Facebook page and sign up for Doty Land and become a friend of this program. A couple of years ago, after James and I came home from a shopping trip, we noticed located at our front door there was a large legal-sized envelope it was quite thick and inside of it was the complete abstract for our home a home that was built in 1892 an old victorian home on the isthmus in madison the first person that owned this land was james doty in 1832 his signature and his uh, sort of dimensions of the property and all the information is located in the abstract James Doty, of course, was pivotal to the creation of the city of Madison and the state capital being located here. And so when it started to become clear that, indeed, we were going to find a way to have a broadcast studio in our home and also that I wanted to do podcasting, the title for the program almost started falling into place by itself. James Doty had to somehow be a part of what this podcast was titled, and in time it just became very clear it would be Doty Land. Not only does it talk about Madison in, in a broad sense, but it also talks about the home that we have, the plot of land that we own, and who James Doty was. And my love of history makes all of this just seem, well, very common sense to me, that it would be named after somebody of note, such as James Doty. So I'm really proud to have you a part of this program, and I am really glad to be able to come into your home or your car or wherever you're listening to this broadcast at. And we're going to get started with all of our interviews today after this. In 2010, 33 Chileans were trapped in a mine, and it was because of ham radio that they were brought safely to the surface. The international story created a lot of buzz. What didn't create a lot of buzz was that amateur radio operators were pivotal 
to the help that those miners received by those helping them to get them out of the mine. It is not as dramatic when it comes to local radio, ham radio operators in Dane County, but there are a lot of ways that local ham radio operators benefit the county, and also there's a lot of ways to have fun with ham radio. And with that, we're going to talk with Paulette Quick from Madison, Wisconsin. I'd like to say welcome to our podcast, and you're one of the first people to sit here at the round table on Doty Land. Well, Gregory, I'm very honored. It's great to be here tonight. So how many years have you been interested in ham radio? And I, I think it's been quite a few, but um, it's, it's a journey that you've been on and you find it rather fascinating. Well, I actually first received my license, or I should say earned it, in 1976. So uh, it's been a while. I allowed my license to lapse, but I picked it up again when I moved to Madison in 1989. So what prompted you to find your love of amateur radio? Was it somebody that you knew, or was it something you read, or what instilled you to say, I have to know more about this, and then once you found out about it, you wanted to participate in it? I've always been interested in technical things and about the magic of radio. I know where my love of radio started. My older brother, who's 10 years older, had a shortwave radio, and I have a model like it in my house right now, and he had a Spanish station out, could have been Voice of America in Spanish for all I know, but it was a Spanish station, and it occurred to this little person that I was that I could listen to Castro in all the way from our, our house to Cuba, that, and that was it. That was magic. That was a great thing. I have to say I don't remember when I heard about ham radio people. But as soon as I did, I knew that's what I wanted to do. You mentioned something, and it causes a recollection for me. I always referred to those magic airwaves. I would live in a small rural town, and I would hear a station from KDKA from Pittsburgh or WSM from Nashville, and I wondered, how did those signals get to me? I, I was a little boy, and it just I was marveling at um, how I was able to be a part of a broadcast from so far away. So I, I, I think we kind of are on that same kind of wavelength. Um, so what does it take to get a ham radio license, and uh, what process does one need to go through to, to find their way to be an operator of a ham radio or to be licensed to use it? Well, actually, the license itself comes from the FCC, but they've loosened up the rules considerably in the last 40 years. So what you do now is you can study on your own. You can get a book from the American Radio Relay League and study up on your own. And then the Four Lakes Amateur Radio Club locally here has test times uh, every month. The first Saturday of every month, they have uh, a time when you can take the test whichever level of test you're going to take, and that's over at Space Place on South Park Street. So once a month you have a chance, and that's all you really need to do, but sometimes people feel they need more support, and for that reason I've tried to hold a license class twice a year. It doesn't always fill up, but sometimes it does a lot. So there are still people interested in this. And when is the next class that you might be holding if people are interested, they're listening to this, and they say, this is something I'd like to entertain and learn more about. How would they go about contacting 
you or when is the next class possibly going to be held? Probably March or April. I'm trying to figure out what the safest month is in Wisconsin to hold a <laughs> class because we get people from all over the state and you never know what the weather's going to be like on a given weekend. Very true. And you were talking about how the licensing uh, has changed over the many years. One of the original ways that ham radio communicated was with Morse code. And I cannot even begin to tell you how difficult I think it would be for me to learn Morse code, but is that something that you've ever ventured on or perhaps even know how to do? At the time that I received my extra license, and there's three levels of license now, technician, which is the beginners, general, and extra, the extra license required 20 words per minute, and I was able to do that. I've forgotten it since then, and and when I retire next month, I'm going to get back into that. But you had to listen to somebody sending 20 words per minute and write it down. And if you had a minute's worth of letters correct and with no mistakes in between, then you passed. That sounds like a true skill to have. You yes. may, and, and you may have forgotten more about ham radio than some people will ever know. So that's another way to look at getting older and, and maybe forgetting a few things along the way. But that happens to the best of us. I, I know that sometimes, uh, Paulette, you refer to people, uh, instead of calling them uh, Rick or Doug or uh, Jane or whatever, you refer to them with a series of letters and numbers. And I've always... Uh, been rather intrigued when just in casual conversation all of a sudden it'll just flow off your tongue as if I'm saying somebody's proper name. So can you describe a little bit to the listeners what I'm talking about? We are very proud of our call signs and the call signs are also allocated by the FCC. You can't make one up for yourself like they did in like oh I guess around uh, 19... 18, you'd make up your own call sign. Well, that's not okay anymore. So the FCC gives you your call sign, and it, there's a number in there for Americans, and there are 10 districts, so that would be 1 through 0. And they're clusters, like, like we are the Central District, which includes Illinois and... Uh, well, I think just Illinois and Wisconsin because Michigan is eight and and all that. So everyone gets a number in there. And then there's a preceding letter or two, which might be a W, a K, or an N, or an A. And then there's two or three letters after that. And I happened, when I first got my license, to get WB9VHF, or as we say, Whiskey Bravo 9 Victor Hotel Foxtrot, and I guard it like it's my given name. In fact, when I ordered something from Land's End, I wanted a tote bag. It said you could personalize it, so what else would I put on there but my call sign? <laughs> That's a great story. That's wonderful. So, um, And the only way to get one of those uh, operator licenses in to get a, a title such as that is to go through the procedure and do it through the FCC? Well, the, as we're called, volunteer examiners, again, for Saturday of the month at Space Place on South 10th Street, um, they give you the test 
and uh, ask for two forms of identification, and I think there's a $15 fee. And you pass the test, and because everything is electronic now, within a few days, the FCC gives you your call sign. So again, they determine what your call sign is. There is something, however, called vanity signs. So it's very popular for people to get their initials and ask for that for their call sign. When I was a boy, and we're going back to that um, slogan I had about the magic airwaves and uh, just being quite mystified by them and thrilled by them at the same time, I recall I received a station out of Denver, KOA, and I was so excited, and uh, somehow I found an address to the radio station, and I sent off a letter, and I remember I got a mailing back from them, and in it was just some brief promotional material from uh, the radio station. I thought, this is just really quite amazing. I took it to school. I showed it off because uh, I grew up without television, but we had radio, and I was thrilled by the medium, and I wanted people to see that, look how far I was able to listen to a station, which now brings us to uh, the topic at hand, ham radio. So um, there are things called QSL cards, which are a way for you, if you were listening and wanted to make contact or confirm contact, with somebody that you listen to. Is that kind of a correct way to tell the story? That That is correct. In Morse code, there are a series of ways to communicate called the Q signals. And they're simply three letters that start with Q and they mean something like uh, communication between two hams is a QSO, uh, QSO. And uh, the QSL card, as you mentioned, is and QSL actually just means acknowledgement. So when you're sending somebody a card, you're acknowledging that you had this contact. Do you collect cards, or 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 is that something that ham radio operators do? Is that like a stamp collection? Do people say, "Look at the collection I have of QSL cards"? Well, there aren't as many people that are doing QSL cards as there used to be because there's an electronic way to record that through the American Radio Relay League, but some people still send cards. Again, when I'm not working, I'm going to design my own card and I will send that out when I make contacts. But some of the cards, you can look on the internet, some of the cards through history have been really strange. A lot of people that had someone draw themselves or their family or their their shack, oh, that's another thing. where you have your radio is your shack. And the reason it was called that is because when, when radio started, ham radio was just sparks. And they were loud, and, and there was a little bit of a mechanical smell. And so not everybody wanted that in their house, <laughs> or at least the spouse didn't. And so they had, if they had an outbuilding, then that was their shack, and that's where they started it. But soon things became, even in those days, became a little more modern, and you could have your radio inside a house. One of the themes that we're kind of hitting on during this first podcast is the nostalgic view of radio, ham radio. And so I I toss this out based on what you just said, that QSL cards are Um, kind of something from yesterday, and things are done now in a different way to uh, make a confirmation of contact. Have we lost something along the way with technology? It's all great. I mean, look at the different online 
photos one can have of radio, uh, of ham uh, radio operators and their equipment. It, it is quite impressive. But I sometimes wonder if we have lost something along the way by losing touch with some of those nostalgic, wonderful parts to radio, um, kind of how you just were framing it inside the shack, the smell. Um, have we lost something by moving forward? Well, it would be nice if everybody had a QSL card, but I think postage has something to do with that, too, is that's expensive to send out because what most people do is they don't just send the card, they put it in an envelope, and that does get expensive. But as far as contact, the Internet did wonderful things for amateur radio. There are several amateur radio um, email groups that, that if you have a certain radio, if you have a certain interest, then you can connect with other people that have the same interest. And you're always having trouble with your radio or something else. And so you say what the problem is, and then somebody in the group will know what to do about it. So I would say technology has actually made things better for amateur radio. And you were talking about um, uh, ham radio operators locally. I, I mentioned at the top of this podcast an international story where ham radio operators made a, an important difference to 33 miners. You and your group of like-minded individuals help out with local, such as bike rides and races here in Dane County. How so with ham radio? Well, it's actually meant to be practice for if there was a real emergency, and we haven't had anything like that in the Madison area for some time, thank goodness. But the way the bicycle rides work is there's a net control, and that person is in charge of telling the other hams that are stationed at water stops or food stops or some other important places. That's the person that tells them what to do. So... For example, there may be a report that there's somebody who's missing. So the net control will send out almost like an all-points bulletin to all the hams and say uh, a description. We never give names of the bicyclists. A description and the number that's on their back. And then, and then say, look out for this person. This didn't happen to me uh, directly but there was a story when I just started this of a woman that on a hot day was on her bicycle and it was noted that she was missing. So somebody in one of the uh, vehicles, and I'll more on that in a moment, in one of the vehicles went along the route and found her passed out in a ditch. She, the heat had gotten to her. So we were able to do that because our focus is in helping out the bicyclists and we had the resources and we had the time. The vehicles are called sag wagons and they pick up bicyclists whose bicycles have broken down or have just simply decided enough of this I want to go back to the beginning. So that's also has a ham in the vehicle along with the driver and they look for problems. Uh, they often have equipment with them uh, for minor problems if a tire goes out, for example. But bicycles can cause, do all sorts of things. So they'll take the bicycle and the rider back to where things begin. But again, you have the net control and they're 
telling all the, the amateur radio people what, what to do. So the people in the sag wagons, maybe they go the route and then they're told, well, the first 10 miles, why don't you go back in that route and, and look for people and see if there's any more riders. So that way we know if it's getting a little later in the morning that everybody has gone from the starting place to 10 miles up and there's nobody that we have to worry about. So that's again is it's there's a central person that it, it isn't barking commands it's giving guidance. And so God forbid that there was ever an emergency a tornado or some other horrific event but if need be local units of government could utilize the amateur radio services in Dane County that you and your others help uh, or provide and therefore you people could also assist and uh, provide help. That is correct. We will be used to dealing with a sequence and a protocol so that if there is a problem somebody will be the net control and then we know um, there are certain ways that you communicate, that you write out messages and will simply be used to the protocol. And it would be um, important, I think, to end the conversation on an, a very uplifting note, uh, and that is Hamfest. Um, every year, somewhere in the country, there are, uh, for lack of a better word, a, I don't want to say flea market, but a, a, a large grouping of individuals. Uh, why don't you explain uh, what a, a, a Hamfest is, and have you been to one? Well, ham fests are one of the great joys of amateur radio, and many times it is like a big flea market where people are selling radios, or we also call them rigs, or parts, or, or computers, or just books are, are really good, or all sorts of things. So uh, those are lots of fun, and in some of the bigger ham fests there are forums as well, so there's an opportunity to learn. Well, Paulette Quick, you have provided a lot of information. You have demonstrated how important ham radio is to local units of government. And also, and perhaps more importantly, that ham radio is fun and exciting. And again, is there, some, is there a Facebook page or uh, an online entity where um, people can make contact with your group or, or just go to Space Place or tap into that as a way to find out more about the classes that you offer? They can go to the website is look up Four Lakes Amateur Radio Club, also known as FLARC. So there'll be any uh, information there. Usually it'll have my name and phone number and, and email address. And that will tell you where, where the class is going to be. And also if we have something interesting coming up, um, if you don't think it, it's too cold or it's cold enough, we're going to have a winter field day where people go out and they make they make contact with people during the winter and we're looking forward to that at the end of January. And I can almost guarantee you it's going to be cold so yes. that'll be wonderful. Thank you so much Paulette for being a part of this first podcast of Doty Land. I appreciate your time being here. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on and listen to the music in the air. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on and go share. Go share. Turn the So with me is Bruce Miller, a former broadcaster from Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And Bruce went to broadcasting school in Wausau at the Trans-American School of Broadcasting, which was owned and operated by Ray Samanda. So Bruce, when you were a kid, unlike 
young boys and girls who get up today after a long winter's night of snow and they're wondering if school will be in mm -hmm. session. Today, people go to their gadgets in their hand and they find out if they're going to put their coats on and their backpacks and go to school. When you were a kid, you turned to radio. Do you think that kids today have lost something by not having radio to turn to? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here and on this this uh, initial podca podcast dialogue, if you will. Um, I, uh, yes, I think when we were growing up and the, we turned the radio on to see if it was going to be school canceled or not. What, what do kids do these days? They, uh, they can instantly find out on their smartphone. And every, every eight-year-old kid seems to have a smartphone these days, right? I think they do. So, and and I, I often think about what, uh, in our previous conversations over the decades that we've known each other, um, one of the things you did as a, a boy at your home and I did in the country growing up is trying to locate the farthest stations one could receive on their AM radio dial. Yes. And for people that might not know that, who are listening, um, that is termed DXing. And, uh, That's correct. And mm -hmm. so what, what did you uh, find when you were doing that as a boy? How far away could you locate a station? Well, first of all, it's, this is very important. You have to do it at night because that's when all the little AM stations uh, are, are much clearer. I think it's due to atmospheric conditions and the sun is down and these signals bounce off the atmosphere and they can go hundreds and hundreds of miles where during the day they're very limited. So, um, but essentially it took even a little basic pocket AM radio, $10 radio, plug your little earphone into one ear and just get in bed, put the covers over your head and you can just start turning the dial and finding these these uh, exotic stations from Atlanta or uh, or New York or Nashville, Denver, what have you. And they'd come and go and you'd get them for a, a few seconds and they'd fade away. And that was, that was, for me, that was fascinating. And I think part of the charm, you didn't know on a continuous basis because of the atmospheric conditions if those stations would come in. So once you had that station, KDKA from Pittsburgh mm -hmm. or KOA from Denver, and you could get those stations in central Wisconsin. Once you had those, even for a few minutes, it mm -hmm. seemed those were prized moments. You listened and you it was special because they were right. going to fleet away mm -hmm. maybe that night and maybe not come back for a few more nights. And, and you didn't know wh what you were listening to until the announcer came on and gave the station ID. Um, it was kind of a guessing game. So the challenge was always to wait till either the top or the bottom of the hour or between songs when you, hopefully you were still listening or hearing the, the station and the guy or, or gal would come on and give the call letters. This is WTXY in, in Boulder, Colorado or something. And then you could take notes I mean write down okay I got this on this night and so so you yeah. kept a log I, I I think I did I kept a little notebook writing down all the different stations yeah did you know when you were a boy that at some point you might want to entertain the idea of broadcasting as a profession um yeah I um I, I think so yeah it was probably something in the back of my mind even at a very young age when I was, I think, 10 or 11, I got a, uh, a cassette tape recorder as a birthday gift. And so that really was what got me interested in sound and radio and, and uh, the whole uh, recording aspect of it. Uh, and my, my sisters and I would create these little 
radio plays and we'd have fun singing songs and telling jokes and coming up with stories and we'd record them on this little cassette player. So for me that was the introduction into the whole broadcasting world I guess you could call it. So. One of the big changes because we're basically the same age, mm -hmm. one of the big changes in radio when we were boys nothing went over the airwaves that you wouldn't want your mother or your grandmother to hear. And today in some markets and with some more bombastic personalities, Howard Stern being one of them, it is quite amazing how the interaction, the conversation, if you will, between the announcer and the audience has changed. What do you think about where we're headed or where we are in relation to where we were uh, with the word usage and some of the sexual connotations um, that now flows across the airwaves, including some of the um, over-the-top political rhetoric mm -hmm, from both mm -hmm. sides of the aisle. Well, like you said, when we were kids, none of that was allowed. I mean, there were FCC rules in place, and it was just people had a higher sense of moral uh, judgment. You wouldn't think of saying nasty things over the air. And nowadays, with so many choices and options out there, I think it's a matter of who can shock us the most. That's what gets the attention. So if you can, if you can be sexually explicit or uh, use profanity or, or say things that are completely crazy or outlandish, that's what's going to draw the, the listeners or the viewers. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's about marketing. It's about the competition. Back in the day, you didn't have that much competition. Nowadays, everyone's scrambling to get their little piece of the, the ratings pie. So if you can be as as crazy as possible, that's going to get more people to listen. It's, it's unfortunate, but I think that's the way it is. So, so you were a boy listening to radio. Mm -hmm. You were interacting uh, it, with audio with your cassette recorder, and uh, you decided that radio perhaps was something to be taken more seriously and so you started uh, going to school uh, at Trans-American School of Broadcasting in Wausau. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked uh, over the years about the importance of that institution uh, both in terms of our profession and also in terms of our personal growth. Mm -hmm. um, what, what memories do you have of, of if you were going to tell somebody that had no idea what Trans-America uh, Broadcasting was like um, what memory would you hmm. bring up to inform somebody about what they did not know about? Well, I think, <clears throat> like you and a lot of the students who were there, we we first saw or heard about the school on uh, uh, TV commercials. That's where I s heard about it. Is the I, I, that's the same way with me okay. back in Hancock. Um, so, yeah, but once once I got to school, for me. Unlike a lot of the students, I was a couple of years older, so I had already been to college for a couple of semesters. So for me, it wasn't quite the dramatic uh, change of lifestyle that it was for some, but, but still, it was my first time away from home, living uh, away from my parents' home. Um, you're basically on your own, having to buy your own food and pay your own expenses, so that part alone was quite a shock, quite a change. You know, suddenly we're um, responsible for our own well-being, uh, apart from school. So that, that alone was a big part of it. Um, Ray Samanda uh, was a, a keystone. He was the owner of the, mm -hmm. of the 
broadcasting school and uh, a colorful personality, to say the least, one that many people will know if they watch any of the Menards commercials right. here in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, Race Amanda played a, a, a role in our lives. Um, sometimes we talk about it in joking ways, mm-hmm. and, and after his passing, we, uh, which happened uh, about a year ago, we uh, recollected that he also gave us a chance to start being adults by accepting us mm-hmm. to broadcasting school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Race Amanda, any memories of him that... Uh, like, like you said, everybody saw him on the Menards commercials. I, I, I knew about him long before... I knew he was involved in the broadcasting school, so um, yeah, he was an interesting character. Um, I he did come by the school occasionally and to say hi to the students, and and he was a little bombastic, if you will, and uh, liked to flaunt his success. And uh, uh, but I guess that goes with the territory. So um, yeah, he he uh, um, he was a memorable figure, that's for sure. So after broadcasting school, you started a job at WSBT? Uh, no, I, I did not go into uh, radio broadcasting right after school. I, I worked, I went back to college actually for a few years, and uh, then I worked in a uh, restaurant. So I didn't actually get into radio till probably s- six or seven years after we graduated. Do you remember your first night on the air? Uh, well, I, it was at the college campus radio station so which was voluntary you know unpaid um which was a a nice way to kind of ease back into it you weren't on a commercial station with a lot of pressure on you to perform perfectly you know because a lot of the students at college radio aren't um you know well trained it's sort of a, a proving ground for future broadcasters so that was nice i could i could ease back into it so you had a uh, a relaxing time yeah. moving into mm-hmm. radio. The first night I was on the air by myself at the station, it was an AM-FM combo in Sturgeon Bay, and Ronald Reagan was having a address from the Oval Office on the AM station. The Milwaukee Brewers baseball game was being played on the automated portion of the FM mm-hmm. portion of the station, <clears throat> and we had a massive thunderstorm, and I generally love lightning and thunder and the bombastic mother nature has mm-hmm. to offer but this time it blew out the signal from the tower and i knew how to turn the station off at night i did not know how to turn the station back on and one might say it would be just the reverse and mm-hmm. in part that is partially true but not mm-hmm. totally true so we basically were off the air and the the son of the radio station owner drives up in his orange Corvette and storms into the station all wet because it's just pouring outside and is fuming that um, why is the radio station off the air and most of the listeners it would appear were calling me to ask that same question so I'm on the phone dealing with all of these uh, irate people wondering what's happening in the baseball game (laughs) and uh, we finally get back on the air but um, my first night on the air was uh, a memorable experience. Trial by fire. Trial by fire and not, at the time, very um, uh, heartwarming, for sure. So automation. Um, Radio has changed. Um, uh, The roles that you and I played Mm -hmm. behind the radio board, um, substantially different now. We were, um, in fact, for listeners of this podcast, um, everything that you are hearing and the work that goes into this podcast is taking place from a computer um, application, a computer program, whereas in the days when you were behind the microphone Mm -hmm. and I 
uh, was doing the same, we could literally stretch our arms out from left to right and have the soundboard um, in front of us, tape decks, cartridges, and record players around us. And today everything is being done basically with a keyboard. Has, in your estimation, the digitalizing of radio changed some of the magic for the people behind the microphone? Uh, no, not, not, not really. I think radio at its core is about the magic of the message and the music and what you say. How, how it gets out to the people is interesting to see the, the transformation from the old days where we had, like you said, a, a studio full of um, glowing lights and, and big machinery that weighed a ton and transmitters and all this and that and uh, and now it's, it can be done from a laptop, a, a $300 laptop. Um, that's all fine and good. Makes it a lot easier, but I think the, the essential concept hasn't changed. Um, so the, the, the message is still there. It, it, it really depends on what you have to say to somebody or the, the kind of music you want to play. And that's, that's always going to be uh, unique and the interesting part of it. So... So I have long argued, and I know we've talked about this in the past, that mm -hmm. I think that radio is the most intimate medium. Uh, television um, has the ability to be, of course, visual, but radio has a certain connection when people are driving late night in their car, they're sleepless, they're laying in bed, they're either fighting off the cold or the flu, mm -hmm. um, or you know the baby is uh, going to be up in a couple of hours needing to be fed, and radio just has this way to connect with people, especially late at night, and I just think there's a, a certain magic and a certain connection that no other medium can quite link to the way that radio can. I agree, and I think it's a kind of a lost uh, art form, if you will. A lot of young people don't don't listen to radio on a regular basis. They're too busy playing their their music, their streaming music on their smartphones. Um, so yeah, back back in the day, we didn't have much more than that. Sure, we had TV, but uh, radio was a big part of our lives. And now there's so many other options and choices out there, it kind of gets pushed to the back burner. And I think a lot of young people are missing out in that intimacy you're talking about. And, uh, and, and I concur with your thinking. Yeah. I'd like to thank you, Bruce, for being um, on our podcast and talking about um, some of the memories of radio. And, and I'm just hoping that um, somewhere out there, there's a kid that says, wow, maybe I should turn off my gadget and turn on an AM radio late tonight. And especially in winter months when the signals are much more um, able to be uh, sent afar and just see how far they can listen to something from their home in Madison or wherever they're listening that, to this podcast. I couldn't agree more. Like you see, and, and it's true. In, in the wintertime, the, the channels seem to travel a little bit farther just as they do at night. But uh, no, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. I often talk about the intimacy of radio. I believe that radio is the most intimate of mediums. Be it driving home late at night, you're listening to a radio announcer, you're in bed, you're not feeling well late at night, or perhaps the baby needs to be fed and a parent is up, and uh, what do they do? They turn on the radio. When I was on the air at WDOR in Sturgeon Bay, I always thought of myself as a broadcaster from the neighborhood who tried to inform, entertain, and be companionable. 
And when a disc jockey, a radio announcer, a news reporter is doing their best job, it is when they are being a companion to the person who is listening on the receiving end. Perhaps that is best summed up by what often occurred at 7.45 on Sunday mornings when I worked at the radio station. I would start on air at 6 a.m., turn the station on, get a full pot of coffee going, and start playing southern gospel music. A woman on her way to church would drop by, knock on the back door of the studio, and give me a baked good from her oven. It would be warm, it would be wonderful, we'd participate in a few minutes of conversation. The fact that she drove to the station to drop off a baked good meant that I was connecting with someone over the airwaves. I was not sitting at her table or talking with her over the backyard fence. I was communicating to her and other people, and it mattered. The key to broadcasting was making that very real and very personal connection with people. While on the air, I used a pseudonym, Trevor James. I had carefully chosen the moniker as a way not only to keep separate my personal and my professional life, but it was also a way to fulfill a promise that I had made to a very special person in my life, my nephew Trevor. He was a most remarkable boy, a pleasant personality, a winning smile, and he was always so pleased when someone had a little more faith in him than he had in himself. And as I was studying at broadcasting school and joking with Trevor, he said, I sure would like to hear my name on the radio, and I never forgot that. When I started at WDOR and chose my pseudonym, the first part came easily. It was going to be Trevor. And James, that part came from Sonny James, a country singer I continue to enjoy. Trevor James, therefore, was created, and my nephew was pleased, and I've always been very happy with that name that I chose for on-air performances. I'd like to thank you for joining me for this initial podcast of Doty Land, and I would hope we meet again, and don't forget to join this program on Facebook. Thank you. This is Les Nesman, your man on the scene here at the Pinedale Shopping Center. There are hundreds of people who have gathered to witness what has been described as perhaps the greatest turkey event in Thanksgiving Day history. All we know for sure is that in a very few moments, there are going to be a lot of happy people out here. And now the crowd is... The, the crowd is uh, curious, but well-behaved. And I think I hear something now. Uh, the crowd is moving out into the parking area. And, oh yes, I can see it now. It's a, it's a helicopter. And it's coming this way. A helicopter? It's flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's a large banner. And it says, uh, Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, w? Ladies and gentlemen, what a sight. The copter seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object. Uh, perhaps a skydiver plumbing to, to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. The third. There's no parachutes yet. Hitting the ground like sacks of wet cement. 